This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. Well, welcome, friends, to Community or Chaos. Today, we are very fortunate to have in Kevin Clements, who is the former director and foundation chair of the Peace and Conflict Studies Center at the Otago University. It's the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies. He's also a director of the Toto Institute in Japan Peace Studies Program. And we'll be talking, starting out, we're talking about Archibald Baxter, naturally. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Well, welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you, thank you Marvin. Love to be here. Congratulations on the um, Saturday opening of the Archibald Baxter Memorial for Conscientious Objectors. Thank you. It's, it's been 10 years coming, so it's, it's had a long gestation period, and so we're very pleased to see the monument finished, and uh, it got a wonderful um, uh, number of people there on um, Friday to um, for the opening. I think it was a very important occasion. How many people do you think might have showed up? Uh, we uh, we had at least uh, 300 on three different sites, so we had people gathered above the monument, People gathered on the monument and people gathered down on George Street, which was cut off for the uh, occasion. Most people, many Deneeners, the people who live in Deneen all their life, know about Archibald Baxter, but many probably do not. Can you talk about Archibald Baxter for a bit? Yes. Uh, Archibald Baxter was, um, was, a, was a farmer from, um, from Brighton, uh, near Deneen. Um he had, um, I think it was five or six brothers. Um, uh, all of them were very profoundly influenced by a socialist humanitarian lawyer called A.R. Barclay, who um, uh, really persuaded them in the 1890s that uh, you know, war was um, inimical to um, human development um, and um, and both Christianity, Marxism, and humanitarian principles. So <clears throat> they were they were really convinced by this. Um, and not only Archie, but all of, also all of his brothers um, decided that the pacifist option was the only option that they could live with in terms of ethical values and religious beliefs. 
You mentioned, um, or you or one of the speakers mentioned Kerr Hardy in Archibald Baxter's case. Can you talk about that? Keir Hardy was a British Labour, um, uh, in fact, I think he was Member of Parliament in the end, a British Labour leader of the opposition, um, and was a very important influence on socialist movements all around the world <clears throat> at the um, turn of the century and up until the 1930s. Um, he came and visited New Zealand, and again, he was another person who also um, uh, supported pacifism um, on grounds of uh, workers' internationalism. That is, he, he thought that uh, no working man should take up arms against another working man. He um, was rather remarkable, wasn't he? He was a, grew up as a coal miner, very poor family. Yes. Uh, probably his family, he reminded him in the first literate person in his family. I'm not sure about that. And he started one of the first labor parties in Great Britain. I think he was from Scotland originally. He was from Scotland originally. And and James, uh, and uh, Archie Baxter named his um, oldest son James Keir yeah. Baxter after Keir Hardy. Keir Hardy was not only um, supported the conscious objection, he also supported... Um, at some cost to himself, I think, um, the rights of votes to women very early on. Yes, yes. No, he, was, he, was a very, he was a very progressive force. He anticipated the welfare state. Um, he was uh, very concerned to make sure that um, uh, everybody had uh, wound to tomb security. He was the one that coined yeah. that phrase, wound to tomb security. And that was a very yeah. powerful influence over... Uh, New Zealand's Labour Party leaders, as they, um, as they made um, um, uh, their their sort of uh, policies and so forth on uh, during the Great Depression. What happened to James K? I mean, what happened to Archibald Baxter when World War One happened? And also, perhaps you can talk about World War One. Is it a case in point about the nat- nature of most wars? Yes. <clears throat> World War I was <clears throat> the first war, which I think you can say <clears throat> was slaughter on an industrial scale. No, I think <clears throat> the American Civil War was the first one. Well, that's right. That was a bit, but this, this uh, you know, took the American Civil War to new levels with um, all sorts of new diabolical weapons of war and so forth. Um, uh, and you know, and, and millions were killed in it. Um, Archie and his brothers, um, uh, you know, had already had the experience of the Boer War to <clears throat> make to sharpen their own thinking about this. Uh, and uh, initially, in the First World War, before conscription came about, uh, there were a large number of people who said. You know, well, maybe there are some <clears throat> reasons why we might want to object to this war. But there was also a great patriotic wave. Um, uh, this was the sort of first war that the new colony um, had uh, been asked to join um, in, in, in as part of the imperial war effort. Um, so Baxter had a concern about it, both in terms of imperialism. He had no desire to um, expand um, British imperialism and because of his humanitarian and Christian pacifism. Um, 
And uh, so when he was uh, conscripted in 1917, uh, he and his brothers uh, simply refused to put on the uniform uh, and conscientiously objected. There, there wasn't at that stage a kind of a procedure for conscientious objection. You simply had to refuse the orders for conscription. Uh, and that refusal meant, and he'd already been a fervent advocate for pacifism, uh, but uh, the conscription order uh, meant that he was on a collision course with the state. Uh, and when his date for appearance um, at the, um, the the local military hall in um, South Dunedin came up, um, he didn't appear. Uh, and so he was immediately arrested by the police. Uh, and that started off a chain of um, uh, imprisonments uh, where he was treated very badly, uh, where there was, uh, you know, he was put on starvation rations, he was beaten, he was um, asked if he had put on the uniform. Uh, when he refused to put on the uniform, uh, others uh, tried to forcibly put on the uniform for him and he, he took it off. <clears throat> and then he fell foul of the then uh, Minister of War who said that um, he didn't want conscientious objectors uh, raising any questions about the war effort and insisted that um, um, as an example, 14 uh, conscientious objectors uh, would not be held any longer in Trentham or any other prison in New Zealand, but would be dispatched to the front lines. And that's where um, Baxter and his brothers were sent. Um, and there again, they were subjected to enormous uh, brutality, um, both from uh, New Zealand authorities and British. Um, and eventually they were dispatched to the front lines in uh, near France, near Ypres, um, in a place called Mud Camp. Um, and that's where he, um, he was uh, given particularly brutal treatment, including um, field punishment number one, uh, which was when he and a number of others were just sort of literally tied to a post uh, within earshot of the front lines uh, for hours on end. And it was a very painful and excruciating uh, form of torture. Can you explain a little more about what um, that involved? Well, field punishment number one was uh, instituted by the British Army to replace flogging. They decided that flogging wasn't um, uh, wasn't compatible with twentieth century ideals or values anymore. So they abolished it and uh, and replaced it with field punishment number one. And this meant tying um, a military defaulter or deserter or somebody who had um, disobeyed military rules uh, to, a, to a post that was slightly inclined forward. And the person that was receiving the punishment was then tied um, to, the, to the post in a way which had the arms, arms strapped up behind um, his back uh, around the post uh, and, the, and, and the legs strapped very tightly to the bottom which meant that uh, blood flowed uh, remorselessly to the eggs and made legs and made them ache and swell and uh, was absolutely terrible. But more importantly, it generated absolutely excruciating pain in the shoulders and back. Uh, and originally the punishment was supposed to last for two to four hours maximum. Baxter and um, Lawrence Kerwin and Mark Briggs uh, often had um, field punishment number one for up to eight hours. Um, and on one occasion, Baxter uh, was completely forgotten in the middle of a snowstorm and wasn't taken down 
uh, and almost lost his life as a consequence. He was uh, hypothermic um, and uh, and unable to walk, uh, and he was only saved by uh, by kind soldiers who uh, saw him and took him down. Did the uh, British army take this from the Roman army? <laughs> well, it wasn't. It wasn't a standard crucifixion. They weren't. Your no, arms weren't, weren't out like um, like on, on the cross. Um, it, it was, uh, but it was the same thing, basically. Yes, you were you were um, tied to a pole, uh, which you couldn't escape from, um, and then uh, and, and and for hours on end, and it was excruciatingly painful. What happened to Baxter after this? Well, after that, um, the, uh, the commanders and others realized that he and Briggs uh, and Kerwin um, were not going to um, to give up um, and put on the uniform um, and didn't succumb to the pressure that was inflicted upon them. Uh, and so at that point, um, uh, the commanders um, lost the plot and simply said that they should be they should either walk or be carried or pulled um, to the front lines along with the troops. And um, Mark Briggs, for example, uh, refused to walk uh, and refused to be carried. Um, and so he was dragged along the duck boards, um, which had wire netting on them to prevent slipping. Uh, but that meant that they were also extremely jagged. Uh, and he was basically, his back was lacerated. Um, Baxter was uh, pulled along the planks, uh, and then um, he didn't uh, have uh, quite as uh, extreme lacerations as as, as Briggs, um, but then was walked to the front lines uh, with uh, out knee weapons, um, along with the uh, New Zealand infantry who were who were marching up to the front. Did they all survive the war? Uh, uh, no, one of the 14 did not survive. Um, he became a stretcher bearer and was killed. Uh, Lawrence Kerwin um, did succumb to that final pressure and also became a stretcher bearer. Um, some of um, Archie's brothers uh, also became stretcher bearers. Um, it was Kerwin Briggs and, um, and Archie that held out to the end. But he, he, uh, uh, he, he then... Um, was placed on starvation rations when he endured all of these appalling experiences. He was nearly blown up um, in the front lines. Um, and uh, at the end of that, he, um, he, he was pulled out of a, um, um, of a, of a bomb site that had uh, you know, just exploded near him um, and left on the side. And he, uh, he managed to pull himself uh, towards a field, uh, lay in the field and was then picked up by British stretcher bearers who took him to a field hospital um, where a kind British doctor um, said that he had uh, suffered to the limit of his endurance and was uh, and, and um, diagnosed him as psychologically insane. Um, and that meant that Baxter was uh, prevented from any further punishment and was eventually sent back to New Zealand. How did he su- survive after that? How, did, how was he returned to New Zealand? Well, um, 
he, uh, you know, he had, had lost all his teeth. He was a broken man psychologically. Um, he had seen terrible travails and has experienced terrible deprivation. So he, he came back um, a shadow of the former self that had left New Zealand uh, on the Waitamata in 1917. Um, uh, people couldn't recognize him. He was a, you know, he was a very stocky, um, strong New Zealand farmer. Uh, and and came back a shadow of himself, uh, and he came back to um, experience continued discrimination from uh, his own community at Brighton, um, and certainly in Dunedin, um, who wanted nothing to do with him. Um, he had a terrible time finding work um, as a farmhand, and he was a he was a farming contractor basically. He had, terrible, he had a terrible time finding work as a farmhand. Um, and um, I think he was really saved by um, Millicent Macmillan Brown, um, who was the daughter of um, former vice chancellor of Canterbury University, who had read about um, Baxter in a, a publication that had uh, published one of his letters from the front. And she said she wanted to meet this man because she couldn't imagine anybody that had uh, suffered to his um, in, to the extent that he had uh, and so um and she came down to uh, Dunedin to meet him um and uh, fell in love with the shadow of a man that could see uh, something inside him that was uh, uh, just irresistible um, um a sort of will and spirit um, that, uh, you know, remained even with all of the physical and psychological suffering that had been inflicted upon him. And so she was the one who, uh, I mean, she married him, much to the chagrin of her parents, because she was uh, a blue stocking from uh, Christchurch and part of an intellectual family. Um, and uh, she gave it up to become a farmer's wife in Brighton. But she wasn't any ordinary farmer's wife. She continued to um, agitate for pacifism and socialism. Um, and as you know, produced uh, J.K. Baxter, one of New Zealand's best lyric poets, and um, Terence Baxter, who was uh, an engineer. All right, we'll probably have a piece of music now and then we'll come back. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago Where have all the flowers gone? The girls have picked them, everyone Oh, when will you ever learn? Oh, when will you ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing. Where have all the young girls gone? Long time ago. Where have all the young girls gone? They've taken husbands, everyone. Oh, when will you ever learn? 
Piece of music from Pete Seeger, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? And we're talking with Kevin Clements on conscientious objection to war. And we've been talking about James K. Baxter. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast, then going to community or chaos. Well, Kevin. Why did so many people, why was the government, it seems to me the government was harsher on opposition to World War I than most of the wars, recent wars. Is this because they didn't have a rational reason for supporting the war? Um, well, I think they realized that it was, um, it was industrial level slaughter that, that um, um, they also realized that um, uh, if um, you know, the, the pacifists and others who refused to go were able to talk about um, what happened on their own personal experience of the front lines, it would be extremely damaging to um, their own conscription efforts and so forth. I mean, by, the, the terrible thing is that by 1917, I mean, the writing was on the wall, it was going to be a stalemate, there'd be no clear winners in this war. Um, I, I think they also um, uh, you know, felt that um, uh, you know, there was a, a principle at stake around um, absolute obedience to the state. Um, this was still, you know, the end of the Victorian era, um, where state power was unparalleled. Uh, and it was assumed that the state would um, be able to uh, order citizens around um, as they wished, and certainly in wartime, uh, could demand obedience from them. And pacifists, uh, you know, were the minority that said you can't insist on absolute obedience when we have values that contradict what you're asking us to do, which was become involved in state-sponsored killing. Australia had a different experience, didn't they? They actually forced a referendum on on uh, draft or on conscription, and the government lost that battle. They did, they did, and uh, um, and and New Zealand didn't follow suit. There, that was that was a real difference between Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and Australia still managed to get um, enough volunteers. Um, which shows you something, I think, about the levels of patriotism on the other side of the Tasman as well. The is World War One an example of why we should reconsider war in general, and uh, an example of the 
uselessness of almost all wars. Yes, I, 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 I think that um, the First World War, all of the famous war poets and so forth, I mean, could see at the end of it all absolutely no justification for the slaughter. There was no reasonable rationale for anything that took place. It was just um, generals and politicians sending men and women uh, into battle um, uh, in a situation which was absolutely impossible for everybody. Um, everybody's humanity was diminished um, by the experiences of the First World War. The, the famous books that flowed out of it, like All Quiet on the Western Front and so forth, just underlined its stupidity. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, that's what gives an additional poignancy to the conscientious objective position, because at the end of it all, um, those who had fought in the war um, uh, realized that you know they had been sold um, complete misinformation about its purpose and point. Uh, in New Zealand, uh, there were two um, very celebrated soldiers, uh, John A. Lee and Ormi Burton, both of whom were war heroes, uh, both of whom had, uh, you know, in Ormi's case, a military medal, and so forth, who came out of the war and said this was a travesty. Uh, it offended human values, it offended religious principles, uh, and it offended any notion of uh, human decency. And they came back and were very, very fervent opponents of all wars um, and, were, um, and were, were considered um, important, so important by the Labour government in 1939 that I mean, both of them in their own ways were, were silenced. I spoke to a person after the uh, opening of the um, Baxter Conscience Injector Memorial who said she believed in the last 10 years that the celebration of Anzac Day has become more nationalistic, more celebration of war than even before. That with the last dying out of people who actually took part in war. It's become more of an open celebration of war. Yes. Is that true? It's one of the, one of the cruel ironies, isn't it, that as the world sort of tries to move in a more peaceable direction, there's a resurgence of um, nationalism and to some extent xenophobic nationalism all around. And um, Is our foundation really... Is the best foundation for New Zealand, New Zealand, uh, World War One, and our participation? Well, that was one of the arguments. I mean, Ormi Burton himself said that uh, New Zealand was formed somewhere near, somewhere between the Battle of Gallipoli and the Battle of the Somme, um, and there was an argument that uh, you know a country uh, could only find itself and its own identity as a country, if it um, had been in war and involved in war. Um, uh, but that's a, but that's a complete um, misunderstanding of history. I mean, first of all, we had a, a long Maori history before any white settlers came to the country. Um, secondly, we'd had um, Maori resistance to 
a colonial occupation. Mm. We've done things in New Zealand that were very foundational to uh, democracy. For instance, it's the first country to give women the vote, or that's, that's, the first country true. where women demanded and got the vote. Yeah, that's true. I um, mean, we've done many things that, besides World War One, that were actually much more positive to well, celebrate. Exactly. And 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 uh, um, you know, Dick Seddon's old age pension scheme and so forth was that too. But but there is a sort of a sense that the state proves its mettle. Um, by being bloodied in war. That's one of, the, one of the terrible assumptions, I think, about state formation, that a state is... A is state that a necessary that, myth? Sorry? Is that a necessary myth? Well, it, it, it's, it's part of the myth that, you know, flows from the fact that um, Max Weber and others said that a state is only a state when it has a monopoly of force. And, it, um, and that, that enables it to control its population, you know, with the police and the military and it enables it to defend itself against other countries. And so that's, that's at the heart of this sort of mythology about uh, you know, New Zealand being formed between the Battle of Gallipoli and the Battle of the Somme. You um, experienced pacifism and opposition to war in your own family, didn't you? Yes, yes. My father was a conscientious objector to the Second World War. And it was, even then it wasn't popular. They didn't treat people barbarically, but it was, you were subjected to dispopularity and to loss of income and some loss of freedom. Yes, I mean, my, my father certainly was. Um, there was a big debate within the Labour Party at the time about how to treat conscientious objectors. Uh, and people like Peter Fraser and Walter Nash had um, uh, you know, wanted to make sure that conscientious objectors of the Second World War were not treated like conscientious objectors to the First World War. Well, Fraser actually experienced it. He was... That's right, because many of them, including Fraser, had been in prison uh, for opposing it. And so they didn't want that to happen again, but they, um, they, they didn't, didn't manage to prevail within the Labour cabinet. Um, and people like Bob Semple and, and Davis and others were, were, were ministers that said, conscientious objectors are a threat to the war effort and to national unity. Uh, they should be um, detained, uh, and they should be forced to work, and they should not have any more luxuries than those of a frontline soldier. Uh, and so to that end, they built detention camps across the North Island and one in Balmoral in the South Island, uh, where um, the, in, the inmates of all of the conscientious objectors uh, were basically given um, uh, hard labor uh, where they were forced to um, uh, cut roads, um, uh, plant pine trees where some of our biggest native um, pine tree forests are um, in, um, up in the North Island, um, uh, plant flax near Shannon and so forth. So they were, they were forced to work on things that were considered in the national interest. Uh, but they also suffered lots of deprivations. Um, the detention camps were a long way from any of the national centers. The only people that could visit were direct family members, and it took them a long time to come, and there were emergency regulations in place that sort of um, affected how much travel you could take place. Um, and they were very callous uh, in their treatment of um, prisoners that had some legitimate reasons for um, 
you know, leaving the camp on compassionate grounds and so forth. Uh, uh, one of my father's friends, Alan Graham, um, for example, was in detention with dad and, and his wife, um, and he lost a, a, a baby because their cot um, collapsed, you know, it was a, a newfound, uh, you know, um, collapsible um, pusher, rather. And, um, and it collapsed and uh, killed the baby. Uh, well, Ellen wasn't allowed to go to the funeral and things like that. Um, and that was, you know, it, 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 and there were, there were hundreds of different experiences of that kind of individual suffering, um, which meant that, you know, it had a, a very painful effect on, on people. I mean, I've mentioned this before in a show, but, you know, my, my mother had a similar sort of experience. I mean, her brother Owen, who was her favorite brother uh, and the one she loved the most, um, was killed in um, City Egg in Libya um, just after the um, Battle of Al Alamein. And, um, and instead, and, 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 her, and her husband was in, con was in detention and um, she was at a Methodist church and, uh, and the, the congregation turned against her and um, said that, you know, if her cowardly husband had um, been with the forces, then her brother might not have died. I mean, so this this kind of psychological pressure was just too much. And and that experience was reproduced all over the country. And when COs were released from detention, I mean, they couldn't find jobs. If they'd worked in the public service, they were denied access. Teachers couldn't resume teaching jobs. Um, uh, and they certainly couldn't come back and become civil servants. Uh, and they lost their um, voting rights, um, I think, for about 10 years after the war. Well, it's similar to the experience Japanese Americans had just for being Japanese Americans. Yeah, exactly, the same thing. Uh, and, and the population tolerates that kind of treatment because, you know, the, there was... There was no doubt that um, you know New Zealand soldiers, sailors, and airmen, you know, were experiencing terrible deprivations on the front lines wherever they were in the Pacific or in in Europe. Um, uh, so war itself uh, generates these dynamics which are dehumanizing and um, uh, and which cause immense suffering on all sides. How much did we learn from that? Did you have any problems setting up the Baxter Memorial and the place to? To, to have the memorial in Dunedin? Oh yes, we 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 were, we were looking for sites in Dunedin, and um, and the Return Services Association, uh, you know, opposed a couple of our choices. So um, it has it wasn't by any means a sort of a um, a simple procedure to get this site up and running. And the, the city council kindly came to the um, party and gave us the Albany George Street site. Um, uh, which wasn't optimal. It's a very challenging site to put a monument on. Um, on the other but, hand, it's a very good site in some well, ways. Other, exactly. It's very prominent and, and people will see it and there's a lot of traffic going through it. And, and because uh, of its difficulty, it actually may mean more. I mean, it's, if you go to it, it's an amazing site. Yeah, and, and I, already I haven't been there in the last day or so, but Apparently, um, students are coming down now and going past it and stopping to reflect on the sculpture, which is of a representation of field punishment number one. 
and to read all the signs around the world, which are all about peace and and uh, the treatment meted out to conscience objectors in both world wars, uh, and also uh, highlighting the nonviolent resistance of Perry uh, Harker to, to um, the uh, the followers of Tohu and um, and so forth. Perry Harker, New Zealand went into uh, Afghanistan enthusiastically. The Prime Minister at the time, Helen Clark, was enthusiastic about going into Afghanistan. Do you think we've learned anything? Uh, we didn't go into Iraq. Well, that was very fortunate. I'm pleased Helen decided not to do that. I think in retrospect, the um, although it was a United Nations-sponsored intervention, um, I think in retrospect, it was a total disaster as well. And you can uh, tell that by the fact that, um, you know, an occupation army is not able to change a regime or change patterns of behavior. Um, well, and, but that was one of the surprising things about Helen Clark's attitude recently. Yes, she. I think she feels much the same way now. That um, I mean, she actually wrote an article saying we should have stayed in there much longer, and she compared it to uh, American troops being UN troops being stationed between North Korea and South Korea in a very different situation. Yeah, yeah, but but all of the recent wars that the West have been involved in um, haven't achieved their purpose and have generated enormous costs. Maybe the question is: is why don't politicians learn from us? <laughs> That's the $64 question, Mark. I mean, you no, have to assume that Helen Clark is reasonably intelligent, but she didn't learn from it. Right, and she had been an anti-war activist all her life and an anti-nuclear um, activist until, too. Until um, she became prime but, minister. But sometime, sometimes um, uh, some, sometimes um, uh, politicians find themselves yeah. uh, subject to kind of different pressures which they have to respond to in some way. Well, it's true, but do we have to 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 change our own views? Well, because no, I we think compromise? that I, you know, I think that we need. We, you know, I mean, what I'm saying is that sometimes I think politicians they falsify, uh, they convince themselves that they're right when they make a change like this, to send troops where they might not have done so if they'd just been a member of parliament in the opposition. Yeah. Um, I think if you look at all of the wars that New Zealand has been involved in um, since Korea, I mean, most of them have been misguided and had the opposite effect of what was intended. Um, and so we should have drawn lessons from that. But... Uh, there are also powerful forces within New Zealand and within the, the foreign policy establishment here that are saying, you know, we have to, if we're going to have any influence on global affairs, then we have to do our bit for like-minded countries, by which we mean the West and Japan. Uh, and it's, um, you know, when the call comes for us to play a role in reconstruction efforts and so forth, then, um, you know, then we have to be responsive in some way. Um, and it's also, it's fine with the, the benefit of hindsight to say, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, we we added very little to the to the reconstruction of, of Afghanistan, but 
you know, we could have anticipated it from all of the failed disasters of the last hundred years in Afghanistan. Um, so I think it's, it is true, uh, you know, political leaders need to learn more from history. Um, I think political leaders need to take soundings with um, uh, the population and and people have been thinking about these issues for a long time. Do you think they're going to, the leaders of America and China, are they going to learn anything from their past experience? Well, I certainly hope so, because um, uh, an unintentional or accidental or even intentional conflict between uh, America and China would be a total disaster for the whole world. Um, uh, it would uh, represent carnage in the 21st century that would make the 20th century carnage um, seem insignificant. In some ways, what are the, what should be New Zealand's relationship in this situation? What's I, I think that we I think that you know we, we've got to carve out a more independent role for ourselves um, it's important that we maintain that we maintain good links with the countries that we um, are associated with um, but it's equally important that we um, develop and maintain good links with those that might be our enemies um, this is at the heart of cooperative and common security and uh, unless we're um, um, building bridges and developing extensive relationships and networks with um, countries that we fear, uh, we'll have no influence over them in the event of disputes becoming conflicts and the conflicts becoming violent. Do we have some advantage that we actually have a relationship with China, not only in trade but in culture? Yeah, I think that uh, I think New Zealand's well placed. We haven't aligned ourselves with Australia's bellicose attitude towards China. Um, we haven't got nuclear submarines coming along to help contain China. Um, I think that New Zealand and, and most of our trade is with China. Um, and I think that we need to, uh, you know, find a find a spot, a sweet spot um, that. Uh, will enable us to speak truth to China when truth has to be spoken to on human rights and other issues, um, which, which enables us to pursue a friendly relationship um, and would certainly enable us to play a, a brokering, mediating role between others who might choose to see if they can coerce China to change its behavior. Do you see the, you think we may be learning some lessons about in, intervention in other countries and the use of war as an instrument of policy and diplomacy? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think the whole notion of troops on the ground, I mean, apart from you know, peacekeeping admissions and so forth, um, I think the whole idea of troops on the ground anywhere uh, in this day and age is... Um, is very 19th century. Does that make it sense that we should also oppose drones and automated? Oh yeah, well the, well, the lethal autonomous weapon systems and drones and and uh, fighting warfare from uh, you know 
I mean, you kill as many civilians that way as you ever would yeah. by sending troops. They, they have they have to be proscribed as much as you know other lethal weapons of war and like mines and yes, and there's no justification whatsoever for um, uh, extrajudicial execution of of ostensible enemies um, by drone. I mean, the United States' persistence in using drones to knock out um, so-called enemies. Um, contravenes uh, you know, yeah. all sorts of international human rights law. Okay, you've got a couple of minutes, so can you talk about your hopes for peace? My, my hope is that, um, you know, we are indeed moving towards a position where, you know, we can indulge the better angels of our nature, um, where, we can, where we can really work hard to try to promote nonviolence as a way of life and nonviolent solutions to problems that we keep uh, the military solutions and coercive solutions um, to the very end of any kind of political option uh, and, uh, and only ever use it uh, in the rarest and rarest of circumstances. Um, and I think that we need to um, do what we can to overcome this drift towards nationalism all around the world and reinforce and support multilateral institutions like United Nations and regional organizations, uh, which are trying to uh, somewhat moderate the impact of negative nationalism. Does humanitarian attitudes toward our own people and toward other peoples go hand in hand with peacemaking? If, if a country can't um, house its own people and can't provide a certain amount of equality, whether you're talking about the United States or New Zealand or China or whatever country. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, the way you treat the weakest in New Zealand is going to determine how you treat the weakest outside. And so there is a kind of a very important link between domestic welfare and assistance to those in need uh, and our overseas development assistance and our diplomacy. If we can um, make sure to everybody that you know we we intend no harm uh, and wish to do good, uh, that will certainly um, make us a much more positive um, global citizen and enable us to do our bit in the right places like the United Nations and elsewhere. Well, thanks a lot for coming on board, and um, thank you. Oh, All the best. You and every other people will continue the work for. Uh, humanitarian peace in our nation and in the world. Good, man. Thank you.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.